0: Clive Smith, as it is TV, presents the podcast, Endless Pressure. 50 Years On revisiting Ken Price's study of West Indian lifestyles in Bristol. Narrated by Josephine Contis.
1: If it wasn't for us as a people, I do not know what Bristol would have been because St. Paul's was a wreck. The war had break up St. Paul's. You can't get nowhere to live in St. Paul's even though we was live in houses, 10 and 12 people, 20 people live in houses and share a thing they call hammock. Because, and there was bed which for let by a certain group of people who was for a shift. You know, you sleep during the day, one lad sleep in the day, one slap sleep at night. One lot hang up in the night, a man on the chest out during the day. And everywhere you go, the houses was set on the doors. No dogs, no black, no Irish, no room for legs. But there was a lot of phone boat about that a lot of people standing up in Fort they endless less hours. Ken Price will come back and write again. So he finds his, his strength
2: in what he's seen happening to us.
3: Ken Price calls it uh, like some poor shanty towns. No, they
2: call it the ghetto. Right, it
3: was the ghetto. It was the ghetto, right.
2: the newspaper itself. I don't know if he done any work for many
1: stars because I never saw him go to work like go to work. He's at work every day with his book and pencil. Every day he's out, he's writing, he's questioning, interfering.
2: We had hard times and we were trying to make something better for our children. And so many of them
1: knew what he was doing, in a sense, because there was a huge, intelligent bunch of guys. Myself was a bopper then, you know. I just go around with him. He become my buddy.
4: I, I thought he, 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 he was just using us to, to um, gain his PhD.
3: Who was Ken Price, and why is this story important to tell? He was a young Jamaican man who came to the UK in 1963, aged 21. Despite the overwhelming odds of experiencing racism and discrimination, he managed to study A-levels and do a sociology degree at York University. Between 1969 and 1974, he went on to do a PhD research at the University of Bristol. Ken Price's research was radical and he was an innovator studying West
1: Indian people's lifestyles in Bristol. He was a sharp and shrewd person, very respectful, very intellectual. Which
3: was groundbreaking and controversial. Ken stated research studies need to have insight into black people's experience from non academics and non experts in race relations. He gives examples such as writers, novelists, and activists like Malcolm X, James Baldwin, Vidal Nepal, he states humanistic accounts from inside. Ken Price actually captured what was happening to black people from a grassroots level since he personally noted his own experience being a West Indian.
4: It's very difficult to, um, to get a job, especially as a young black person.
1: The racism was really from people, it didn't bother me.
4: Part of his research tells a story in the
3: language of the West Indian people in Bristol to capture how they evolved and adapted to achieve life goals in the face of overwhelming odds and their own positive contributions in their efforts to cope with life in Britain.
4: Um, The English they perceive us as being noisy and um, loud and you know.
3: This project involves people who had knowledge and were partly involved with Ken Price's research they share their experiences of what life was like for them in the West Indies and their experiences coming to a strange land, including their understanding of Ken Price's research, which later became a book called Endless Pressure. He's
1: at work every day with his book and pencil. Every day he's out, his writing, he's questioning.
3: Kwame Roy, Kathy Roder, who were part and knew about Ken Price's research 50 years ago in Bristol gives their account of coming
1: to the motherland. My name is Wilbert Davis. I born in Jamaica, grew up in Jamaica.
4: My name is um, Kwame Benin. I'm from the island of Jamaica.
2: My name is Laurel Roy
5: Hackett. My name is Catherine LeQuant. I was born in Dominica in the late 50s and came to live in England in 1962.
6: My name is Rhoda Elizabeth Reddock, and I am Professor Emeritor in Gender, Social Change and Development of the University of the West Indies St Augustine Campus in Trinidad. Can you share some of your experience with Ken Price?
1: I myself was a cricketer from back home so we drive a cricket team called Bristol West Indies Cricket Team and we socialise playing at Rose Green. During that time, I met Ken Price. In those times, I drove a car, so Ken never drive a car. So that allowed us to be close. He was a sharp and shoot person, very respectful, very intelligent. We used to meet up in the evening to drop him off at different places. Bamboo clubs, we go to party after that. During the weekends, he would pop into the bookie shop He's quietly go off in the night and his own home, back home, and don't take no one home with him more than his book and his pencil.
6: I met Ken Price. He was at that time teaching in the Department of Sociology. He was a very politically progressive and so was I at the time and I think he found mere kindred spirit to bounce off ideas. We shared a, a, a kind of intellectual curiosity that was very symbiotic.
4: I met Ken Price um, early 70s. He came to Bristol and um, he wanted to write a report about the um, discrimination in, in the education system but also to highlight the unfairness and the discrimination that um, young people face.
2: I always admire Ken for what he was doing here because he was in a white country and he's trying to do something amongst us. He was doing it because of us and he was doing for us. And hopefully that the generation from us would adopt the kind of principles and things that he was doing
3: Rhoda, a former academic colleague and a good friend of Ken Price, explains and shares her experience with Ken Price and his
6: work. It was very good that he began introducing feminist texts in his reading list. He began to introduce issues of rape, etc, sexual violence, so that he had begun working with the early rape crisis
3: There were several critiques on Ken Price's work, one being on the lack of gender issues. Although in chapter 7 on page 88, he interviews and observes and speaks about women on the receiving end.
6: tribute that I did, it was called Women Still on the Receiving End. And in fact, and it drew from one of his chapters, which was called Women on the Receiving End. Do you know what his aims were regarding his research? I think Ken's work tended to be decolonial. It was critical. It was class conscious. It recognised the power structure. It critiqued traditional knowledge and put forward new approaches. It was extremely innovative and path breaking at its time. A West Indian man, a mainliner, which Ken
3: Price terms as another lifestyle, joined the Commonwealth Coordinating Committee, the CCC, which supported immigrants and was the founder of the St Paul's Festival. The CCC was the largest formed organisation in race relations in Bristol, which was mainly supported by white middle class people that later collapsed and became the West Indian Parents and Friends Association. Roy talks about his experience meeting Ken and race relations. He is still part of the association today. Roy, a mainliner, as Ken Price termed it in the lifestyles, who was also involved in the bus boycott in
2: 1963. Unfortunately, although he was part of us, I didn't go into anything that he was doing deeply. I only know that actually he was doing something good because he had a lot of followers. Like we had a lot of followers, you know, including the the St. Paul's festival, because when we we thought about the St. Paul's, it was a thank you to the people of St. Paul's.
4: I met Ken Price because um, he was doing a research. um, Because he said to us that um, it was to do a research within education.
1: I never really knew what the study was. I, you know, he was at university and he was studying, writing and everywhere we go, he was documented, all the information.
3: Ken Price went through all the six different lifestyles to capture, document and observe, as well as interview West Indian people's experiences in their own words. West Indian people set up so many different organisations, including the Marcus Garvey group, which took part with meetings. Also, the Black People's Movement, which was formed by an African student. Half of the teeny boppers attended, observed by Ken Price, as well as the Ruster movement. He talks about this and the politics and ideology in page 168 in the book Endless Pressure. Could you share what you thought Ken Price meant by teeny Boppers?
5: Ken Price says he was talking to young people between the ages of um, 16 and 20s, um, the young people who didn't fit into his category of hustlers. So the teeny Boppers were young people who were trying to find out who they are and trying to find the best way to present themselves as um, black British born
1: they used to call me teeny buffer. I, I was a big teeny buffer. I could see he put me down as the buffer. Because he, he values people most like their ability. He knows a man ability because he's a writer. And now I know what he was doing. I really, 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 really think he did a good job after circumstances. Do you really wanna
0: know about our
3: time? Ken Price captures the endless pressure of the West Indian people living in Bristol and the pressures mounting up and how forward thinking he was in his approach since his study predicted the 1980 riots in Bristol and thereafter in other parts of England due to the brutality and violence from the police. Wilbert goes on to share his experience.
1: In Bristol, the police pull you up, question you, go to party at night. They'll raid the party. I remember there was a a place in Governor Road called the Black and White Cafe. It wasn't only white people go there, black people. It was a mixture of people. There was nowhere else to go as a daytime or evening time. So the the chap will gather there to have conversation about their work and what they don't do. You know, smoke their pot, herbs. And I gladly can never smoke. And neither myself, we wasn't a drink of beer or anything like that. So we was lucky from get away from drugs. But then, as you gather in the cafe, like in the evening, the police will come by. They know you had nowhere else to go than sit in the cafe, but they will come with the dogs time after time. Some weekend, they provide raid by parking up bus along the highway and Governor Road, and move out everybody into the bus to the Trinity Road police station. The worst of, uh, of it though, we did not know where to socialize until the Tony Bullymore created the Bamboo Club and it become a home. Now, it must be one of the best place I've ever built in England because it was more peaceful. It was entertaining and people have nothing to do after the end of the day to go and listen to the music celebrate, dance to the Bob Marley music. Peter Tosh and all these music was about in time. Reggae music came in, the blues. And at the same time, the police will come at night as well after it closed, to disturb the people leaving the club. And Ken Price went away and left us. And I still we're still under the pressure. And if can price come back again tomorrow, we're still under the pressure.
3: What effects did racism and discrimination have on your lifestyle?
5: I can remember one day in the school playground, um, there was an older uh, man from the West Indies, black man, walking outside near the school playground. We were in the playground and a lot of the children ran to the fence to stare at this man. They were staring at this man. And the teacher, who was on duty at the time, went over to them and said loudly, why are you all staring at this darkie when we've got our own little darkie pet here? And he turned it, looked at me, and I've never forgotten that.
1: The racism was really from but they didn't bother me. I built my company, I call it College. It become a demolition company where knocking down all
4: houses and tip the rebels around Bristol. In school, also, there was a fair amount of discrimination, the more, more discrimination for, from the teachers. I remember um, on several occasions um, the teachers would call us names, monkeys, and go back where you come from, and things like that, you know, and the people in the classroom would laugh.
3: Can you remember what work your parents and grandparents did in the West Indies?
2: My grandmother taught me to read and write. She had a little infant school, touched house, and he taught all the kids in the village. And apart from that, she was a midwife.
4: My father, he was a um, farmer. My mom, she was, I mean, I love her to the max, mom. She, she, she was everything. In Jamaica, my grandparents, we were from farming community plowing the field, you know, planting food. And don't forget, we we didn't have no plow that we can have, the the, the cows or the horse can drag it along and plow the field. It was literally back-breaking.
1: My father was a farmer in Jamaica. He farmed and he grows all type of fruit. He had all type of cattle and he made a good living and farming. He do have a farming he called catch crop. He know the season when to sow. He know the season when to reap. And he make sure that all the four seasons of the year, he had fruit coming in so he can go to the marketplace. He raised chicken, but he eat them now abundantly in England. He raised pigs where they hit them still about. He raised cow, he raised goat. And he's done very well.
5: My mum had her own business. She ran a guest house, um, boarding, boarding lodgings for um, especially policemen.
3: And my father worked as a policeman. Britain ruled Jamaica from 1655 up until Jamaican independence in 1962, although the Queen of England is still the current monarch of Commonwealth realms, including Jamaica. After the Second World War in 1948, West Indian people were invited over to help clean up England. So since Britain ruled Jamaica and Jamaicans are British, they would be welcomed into England. Why did you come to the UK? I came because my
5: parents um, came to England to the call of Mother Britain to come and help um, restore the country, rebuild the country after the Second World War. Come to do the work that um, the local people, the white people, did not want to do, so they came here.
2: England did call us to help to rebuild after the war. But when we came to Bristol, they didn't want us and they pushed us in the poor and deprived, and very matter of fact, it's like a ghetto.
4: Um, I came to England in 1965, just before my 14th birthday, leaving poverty street in Jamaica behind, and um, I'd be coming to a better life, and um, things would be much better for me in all aspects of life, education, job-wise.
1: Come to England, you wanted or you saw your mother country, and we felt at the time that everyone of Jamaica felt at the time your mother was one important person, so you have to visit your mother country.
3: Did you feel part of the British society?
1: When I came to England, I came to England as a British, an Englishman. When I said I meant, my passport was an English passport. I have no knowledge being more black than black Englishman. My country was take over and run by the British. I never came here to have a thousand pound because if I did have a thousand pound, I wouldn't have come to England. So I came to England. My father came here. To spend a short while and he spent two years. He couldn't stand it rough because he was doing better back home than what he's done in England. He came and worked into a, a, a mill, make flour. He was earning less and what he was paying his worker back home to work on a farm. And he went back and he never come back. My mother would not come to England.
2: We have no other language and we have no other whatever. We are speaking and writing, we're writing it in English. So let's say we cannot speak it, but we're writing it. But I still did not budge. We had hard times and we were trying to make something better for our children.
4: I came to England in 65 and I leave 95. in In those 30 years, I've never felt part of British society has been British. But going to Florida, like I said, it really um, let, let me appreciate England and see that England is, um, is home, quite honestly.
1: Me, of myself, looking back, I don't know why I came to England. I didn't come here to look for money. You know, not goal like some people probably have done, because I didn't have no goal. home. I didn't have no money. I didn't know money. But I know that England was our mother country. And I really felt let down by our mother. Because the Queen is still the head of state. We in the Caribbean worship the Queen more than the British does. When the Queen arrives in Jamaica, people lie down on the street for her to walk on them. If she gonna walk in them. And... Now, we find it is hard to misbelieve and that's the way things are.
5: In a way, I've always felt like a a visitor here. I've been here for over 50 years. I do feel part of, I have to make it, this is my home. I have adapted the best I can.
1: As I said, we was promised that to clean up England, we did. Being a British, I think it did mean something. But after a while, I have to go myself and purchase my British citizenship. So I demoted from being an Englishman to buying a citizenship in England.
3: Racism and discrimination was rife throughout various authorities, following on from colonialism, the consequences of past history affecting West Indian people then and now. And the question is, has much changed within the systems of Britain today in the areas of education, the legal system, employment, housing, mental health and how black young people are treated by the legal system? and current affairs dealing with the windwash scandal.
4: Who to say what yardstick is going to use to measure progress? In my opinion, the level of discrimination that there is today is not as widespread or up in your face as it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. You, you don't walk in on the street and people calling you wogs and niggas anymore. Yes, St Paul certainly has changed. The blues and the parties and things, you don't get any of those here now. Right now, St. Paul's is like a ghost town. In those days, um, when St. Paul's was vibrant and St. Paul's was kicking, um, St. Paul was just something else. In the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of black businesses around. Engineers, and of course, you painter and decorator, your carpenter, your masons, all, all different kind of um, businesses. Were, were, were in were black businesses were, were in St. Paul's. People were owning their own property. The first generation brought that ethos. The second generation and third and fourth and generation after, they looked towards the council to be, um, to be the provider. We
2: formed in 1968, I'm still here, 1962, sorry. And I'm still here trying to find out why. Because when I was called to the House of Commons on the 8th of December 2015 to witness the 50th anniversary of the Race Relations Act, the most crucial thing to us was racism. They call it color bar. Our God is what they want to call it, it's racism. When the Prime Minister got up in Parliament and said, as from today, anyone discriminate against another, because of religion, politics, disability, or color, you created a crime, punishable. 5,000 pounds and 5 months in prison, are both. You know? And 50 years later, I live to say it, Harold Wilson. But Harold Wilson was forced to do it, I don't think he wanted to. But Lord Pitt, Sir Labour Constantine, all the black MPs. And there wasn't a lot, but Labour Party was the only one that had a black MPs. But a lot, of Tony Benn, the white Tony Benn, he was Lord Stanley. He's from Bristol, Lord Stanley. And then he gave up the lordship to become a MP.
5: Well, compared to the 1970s, Bristol has changed a lot. Um, when I, in the 70s, growing up, you didn't see black people in positions of power or influence. You saw I You saw a lot of. Um, West Indian people working in the chocolate factory with my father worked in ICI. Um, I saw a lot of people doing painting and decorating jobs. Um, Now, I grew up and to be honest, um, most of the people I saw doing good jobs, there were quite a few people working for Hewlett Packard that I knew, um, Rolls Royce, but the people who generally did well seemed to be people who worked in the race relations industry.
1: Yeah, that's the way things are. Things has just been better now. But the Windrush crisis is now plaguing us again. Because there's a lot of people who volunteer, came here when they was young and strong, to clean up England. And they still can't even get a diving license. Most of them was rejected and feel so disappointed. A lot of them had sent home because they had no way to go. So they were sent, but they were deported back home with nothing. And the worst deportation you can ever think of is go back with no clothes. Do you really want to
6: know about our time? Do you really want to know about our time?
3: After Ken Price completed his research, he left England and went to the West Indies and became a criminologist and a pan-African activist at Trinidad University.
6: Is his work relevant today? I'm sure it is. Because the society now has got much more conservative and many of the achievements that black people had gained in Britain north and in the North Atlantic have declined. And of course the relevance of his work I think will be eternal. I think it was it's I think his work is like a one of those classic Criminological studies that we all have to continue to read, you know, in any field, there are classic studies which continue to be relevant, even though they are no longer in the era when they were published. And I certainly believe that Endless Pressure is one of those classic studies, criminological studies of British criminology, which would continue to be classic reading for criminolo- criminologists, sociologists, and even historians in
1: the years to come. I'll give him 10, 10 out of 10. For what he has done, I must say, is a good thing.
6: Did his work have any impact? I'm sure it did. After the shock of 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 his work and what it presented to the british establishment i believe that there were many attempts to adjust in the welfare system the criminological system and certainly criminal criminology studies would have shifted because of that work the mere fact that you're doing this project so many years after is testimony to its impact so i say certainly it did have a very important impact both on understanding black urban inner city communities in britain but with relevance to other situations in other parts of the north atlantic and even in the global south today yes if he was doing his work today what advice i would have given him? Yeah, I think that the biggest lacuna I, I would see in Ken's work today is the absence of gender analysis. I think that studies understanding the intersectional experiences of the people in the Bristol community, the intersections of race, of class, of gender, of location, of history of so many things, probably of sexuality as well, which was also not something we addressed in those days, would present a much more complex understanding of the factors contributing to the behaviors and also the events that happened in Bristol at that time. And also to provide clues in how they could be addressed.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast, and we truly hope you enjoyed it. And please pass it on. Executive Producer, Clive Smith, As It Is TV. Email asitistv at yahoo.co.uk. Narrative Principal Researcher and Editor Assistant, Josephine Contis. Special thanks to Pablo Gad for the use of his music, Hard Times. Acknowledgement of contributions towards this project. Julia O'Connell Davison and Madge Dresser. This project was funded by Brixtow Institute, University of Bristol.